A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. In 1997, three of my classmates were shot and killed in the lobby of my high school. Twenty years later and 30 miles away, my community is again mourning the deaths of two 15-year-old high school students shot in the lobby of Marshall County High School. We're thinking about activism to prevent more of these tragedies and talking about activism through protests with Dr. Dana Fisher. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of applause. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are going to have a special bonus episode for the State of the Unions available to our patrons. So if you are interested in supporting Pantsuit Politics and gaining access to our of the minute thoughts live video feed of the State of the Union, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash Pantsuit Politics. Also today, a friend of the pod, Tish Oxenrider, is premiering Women's Work and I and the premiere episode, and it was such a fantastic conversation with Tish. We had such fun, and I sort of talked my way into expressing some things I hadn't expressed before. It was like a really good therapy session. So go head over to Women's Work and check that out. And then we have some really sad news in my community that we're going to talk about in the show. And then after the mid-roll, we will be sharing our talk with Dr. Dana Fisher about her really interesting research into the protest movement. 
As everyone is now aware, Marshall County, Kentucky, which is very close to where Sarah lives and close to where I grew up as well, had a shooting in its high school. Two 15-year-old students were killed. A number of people were injured. The Courier-Journal, which is a newspaper out of Louisville, Kentucky, has an excruciatingly detailed account of students reacting to hearing the shots. And I think it's the kind of thing that's an important read as we are struggling, I think, to just break the logjam on doing something to stop this. This was the 11th shooting of the year in 23 days. So if Marshall County and Paducah were basically like suburbs of Nashville, it would be the same city. Like that's how close we are. We're only about 30 miles away. It's a high school. I drive every way every day when I go to my grandmother's lake house. It's really close. They're sort of like one of our main high school football rivals in the region. I have confirmed that there are classmates from my high school whose children attend Marshall County High School, which means that you're talking about second generation victims of school shootings. I want us all to sit with that. I want us to sit with what that means to live in a country in which parents as students experience school shootings and now their children as students are experiencing school shootings. Is that who we want to be is my question. Because my frustration with even my own community is this sense of shock. Because why would we be shocked? We have changed Nothing since Heath High School. The shootings have gotten worse and more frequent. I was listening to Krista Tibbet on Ezra Klein's podcast, and I do want to be clear that she quoted Hannah Arendt, that loneliness is the source of terrorism, or terror, I think, and that we lack a moral imagination. And I don't want to simplify this. I think there are a lot of complex causes for school shootings, I think the increased presence of social media in the lives of our teenagers is so prevalent, and the research is becoming clearer and clearer that it is a terrible influence on their young lives. And I think that that is a huge cause of the increase in frequency of school shootings. However, the accessibility of guns is also a huge cause, and we have not limited the accessibility of guns since my classmates were killed. And so I feel such powerlessness and such rage in the face of that powerlessness that now I'm sending my own children to school knowing that we basically just swim around in all these guns, knowing it exposes our children to risk. And I feel like we do nothing about it. A prevalent thought that I have been having since this happened is that immediately taking up the defense of guns has become the the reaction to shootings if you are a Second Amendment person. It becomes either our Second Amendment rights are inviolate, don't come after them, which is what I know you're going to do. And when you do, it's too soon to talk about that. I think that going back to that question, what kind of country do we want to be? What I would like to hear now especially if you're a person who believes that the Second Amendment is sacrosanct in a way that doesn't allow for any steps on gun violence, 
which is not where I am. But if that's where you are, I want to hear some other solutions. Let's brainstorm together what we want to do about this. Can we all agree? Can we be united around the concept that we don't want 11 school shootings in 23 days in America? Can that bring us all to the table to say, what are we willing to do about it? And I think that gun violence, guns themselves, gun regulation has to be a part of that discussion. And I'm here for part of that discussion. But it's not the only part, as you just said, Sarah. And I would like for people to who are adamant defenders of gun rights to, for a moment, channel that same energy into what are the other solutions. Because standing around all day having the same fight about how the existence of other ways to kill people means that we just have to accept that people are going to die is not getting it done. So what are you going to do? And that's that's what I'm asking myself. What are you going to do, Beth? Like, what are you going to do to ensure that you aren't sending text messages to your seven-year-old saying, are you okay? Because I just heard about this happening at your school. So the day of the shooting, I posted on Facebook a link to Moms Demand Action, and I expressed my fury. And I both regret posting out of such raw anger, but do not regret anything or disagree with anything I said. I mean, I would never, ever try to hurt someone going through this. And that's I eventually hid the post because I thought it was too soon and I would never want to hurt someone going through this. And at the same time, I don't know what to do. I'm so angry and I feel so powerless. And I think what I'm realizing is that there are people, people who love their children as much as I love mine, who do not think this is a problem we can solve, who believe that this is the world we live in, who believe that there is evil that we cannot stop. And who believe that there is no solution available to us for this problem. And I'm just, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with people who I know love their children, but who do not believe that this is a problem we can solve. I don't know what to do with that. And I don't know if it is what Krista Tibbett talks about, if it's a lack of moral imagination and maybe we need to talk broader. I don't know if we just need to start talking at all. I I spoke to a friend last night and I said, who is a gun advocate, and I said, I just want, let's just find you and two of your friends who you trust, who love their kids, and I'll find two of my friends who love their kids, and let's just maybe sit down together. I don't know what else to do. I don't know how we can get past this. I don't know how we can make any progress at all, because I honestly believe that there are people who think this is the world we live in, and we have to accept it. And I think, how do you get past that? I don't want to live in that world. I don't, but I don't know what to do because I just, I would love to get to the table where we can say we want better. But the truth is there are people who think better is not accessible to us. I think that's right. Here's what I'm going to do. This is what I've decided. So in addition to participating in the gun conversation itself, which we have done relentlessly in, on the podcast and will continue to do. I am going to host some kind of conversation in my community that promises not to be about gun regulation, because I think a lot of people who love their children and want to solve this problem also do not want to sit through that fight, because we've all heard it before. 
because it is so fueled by certain personality types on both sides that people get exhausted with. So I want to say to people, let's have a discussion that is about everything else, that is not about the question of gun legislation, but is about the question of how can we do better? How can we identify people who are struggling and intervene in ways that we all agree are appropriate early on? What, what other solutions can come to the table? And if you are out there and want to do the same in your community and share those ideas, we will find a way on this podcast to do that, to bring all the ideas to the table that we're hearing community by community. Because I do think you don't have to have a solution to say, I care about this. You don't even have to believe that better is available to sit down with your neighbors and say, is there anything available to us to be done about this? Or just hear what other people have to say that might spark that moral imagination for you. I don't have the solution, but I want us all asking the question because to me, sitting by and watching this again and again and again, I hate that it took something in our home state for me to feel like enough, but that's where I am, enough. And no, we will not prevent every single incident of violence in our country. We won't. But I am not willing to say that better isn't available because perfect is not available. So another thing Krista Tibbet said is like we learn in our communities, like we learn language, but we don't learn language because someone teaches it to us in school. We learn language because we see people using language. And she was using the example of compassion, like, we have to learn this because we see this. It's so deep, and it's so big, and it goes against everything that I am. Like we talk with Dr. Fisher, I'm a protester. I like action. I like solutions. I like checklists. And it's hard for me to send my children to school every day knowing that that is just not accessible right now. And it's going to be a long time before it is, I think. And so the only thing is that is accessible is having these conversations. And despite the fact that I'm a person who has conversations on this podcast for hours every week, I guess I just always think about it as something that makes me feel better, but doesn't make the situation better. And I'm just coming to realize that that is not true. And having to remind myself that that my values are conversations. And when we say, when the, when the listener asks us, how do we decide as America? What does that mean? It just means talking. And I, it makes me feel vulnerable to say that. And it makes me feel powerless in a way to say that. But then at the same time, the paradox is true that it is the most powerful thing that we can do. And it is the most important thing that we can do. I think that that is where we're at. We just have to start talking to one another about this. I hope that we can, and I hope that we can hear each other and figure out exactly where we are, if nothing else. Because the only other thing I have come to believe will change this is, I've said this before on the podcast, and I've listened to my friends. I was not in the building the day of the school shooting, but I've listened to my friends, and I've listened to what they saw. And it is not fair that the communities where this happens And the first responders and children must shoulder the burden of the graphic aftermath of shootings while the rest of us get to look at sanitized pictures of people hugging outside ambulances. Because that's 
not what is happening. The outside of a building filled with ambulances and police cars is not the reality of school shootings. And I think until America can see the reality of school shootings and the reality of what a bullet does to the head of a 15-year-old child, I don't know what will change because we it's too easy. And I say that as a person who has gone through school shooting, it's just too easy to move on. And we have those moral moments and we feel sad and we feel outraged. And then we have to pick our kids up from school and make dinner and make breakfast and we move on. And I don't know what will shake us out of that beyond the graphic reality of school violence. And what I hope is that some moment, I mean, I hope no other moment exists, but let's just be realistic. There will be more violence. More children will die. And hopefully we can have, be have having conversations and have, will have built the moral imagination to finally deal with it. And maybe both of these things can move forward at the same time. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think the conversations are so critical to establishing the scope of the problem in everyone's minds and the availability of solutions to the scope of that problem. We have to have discussions about what level of inconvenience are we willing to endure? A neighbor commented on my Facebook post about this that she thinks more schools should have metal detectors. Are we willing to endure that level of inconvenience? Is that something that we're willing to fund? Let's have those discussions. I think about airport security. I have never once complained about having to take my shoes off and and go through the whole hoopla to get on an airplane because I appreciate any effort at keeping us safe. You know, we have to have discussions about what are we willing to endure and not, how important to us is this, what could be effective, and that's an important discussion. But again, I am not interested in limiting the idea of effectiveness to perfection. We're not going to get to perfection. Let's just agree on that. I, I would love to be at a, at a place where we have a guarantee of no violence in our school systems. We're not going to get there. And that's okay. But we can do better than this. And I think it's also important to have these conversations because schools cannot alone solve these problems. Mm -hmm. And I want to have these conversations without blame because blame right now is the enemy of solutions. Blame is deciding that this is evil's fault or that schools should do better or that a parent who left a gun accessible to a 15-year-old is solely responsible. The fact is, all of those things can be true. And because all of them can be true at different degrees and in different ways in every scenario, it brings us back to this is everybody's responsibility. There is not a single person, I think, who doesn't have an interest and a responsibility in making sure that our students and teachers do not have to face this kind of threat every day. And so that's why I think that having the conversations is the most powerful thing that we can do right now. Because what we are, if we engage in the same activism around every school shooting that we have been engaging in, we're just, we're doing the same thing and expecting different results. And so how can we do something different and get different results? And that's the thing, you know, as a commissioner, I often tell people, like, I want a diverse portfolio of solutions. I want short-term solutions. I want long-term solutions. I want conversations that begin 
to brainstorm solutions we don't know exist yet. So that's what I want here. I am not saying that background checks is what I want and I, that I'm just going to shut it down until that's what I get what I want because that's going to fix it. No, I don't. But I want a conversation about laws. I want a conversation about community and mental health. I want a conversation about security in the short term. I want all those things. Because when it's our children, shouldn't every approach be on the table? Wouldn't we all do whatever it took to keep our kids safe? I believe that. So we need to examine every tool in our toolbox. So we're going to keep doing that on the podcast. I hope that you'll keep doing it in your communities. Next, we are going to talk about activism with Dr. Dana Fisher. I also want to let you know that there are a million topics that we aren't getting to today that we wish that we could. And so come back next week. We're going to talk about what's going on at Harvard. We're going to talk about Judge Aquilina's sentencing statement to Larry Nassar and the responses to that. We're having some really interesting discussions on social media about it, and that will continue. We'll talk about Trump and the solar tariffs. Uh, We've got a lot coming up for you next week. It's good that we have some time to digest because that's kind of what we do here. We try to digest and provide something thoughtful. And we hope you enjoy our discussion with Dr. Fisher. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. 
This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are about to talk with Dr. Dana Fisher. She's a professor at the University of Maryland, where she's the director of the Program for Society and the Environment. She's been studying activism since 2000. She collects data, as she'll describe in our discussion, through open-ended interviews and participant observation. She is the author of several books, and her work has been featured in too many media outlets to name. She has been everywhere lately talking about her work on the women's marches and the resistance, and we are super excited to share this conversation with you. Well, we are really excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you guys, too. Are you tired of talking about your research yet? I feel like you've been everywhere. Uh, No, I actually, I'm not tired at all. And I love that I'm talking to you guys because of the way that you do the nuanced perspective, because I feel like a lot of what's been discussed about my work so far has been these little bitty sound bites. Which, you know, is is important and it's great that people have been really interested, but there's so much more to say about what's going on, you know? Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, I would like to start at the very beginning, if you're willing to. I was reading the chapter of your book that just was put, put on your website. I want to go back to the Netherlands. Will you tell us <laughs> kind of how this all began for you? <sighs> Sure. I mean, so actually, here's how how it really began is I was doing my dissertation at the University of uh, Wisconsin. You can cut any of this that you find boring. <laughs> we won't. <it> <laughs> so I was doing my PhD and the, the dissertation was actually comparing the U.S., Japan and the Netherlands around climate politics. And, and I was taking what I thought of as an innovative perspective, I was looking at the nation state level rather than the international level. And most of the work at the time on international climate politics and the Kyoto Protocol was all about the international arena and how the international world was going to regulate and change the world. And that wasn't what we were really seeing. So that was my perspective. But I come from a politics background and I was in D.C. before grad school. And I really wanted to look at non-state actors, NGOs and activism. So I kept trying to put it into my dissertation, and I worked with a wonderful woman named Pam Oliver, who's a professor at University of Madison, or sorry, University of Wisconsin in Madison, who's done a lot of work on activism and protest. And so I had come as one perspective, and I wrote this whole thing up. And she, she, I remember she at the time her kids were small, and she did her advising from her minivan. We would be dropping off the kids at different events. And we're driving along and I've written all this stuff up. I showed her all this work that I had done. And she's like, there's nothing publishable here. So so she's like, I I think you should just cut it from your dissertation. So I cut that. So so at that point, so so that's the background before I go to the Netherlands. So I go to the Netherlands and they scheduled this protest. 
And I was like, you know what, protesters, they're going to be protesting. So I can don't I can't I can do more than just stand inside and talk to all the people with the badges, which, you know, do include NGOs and government officials and these international people and scientists. But there are people who are going to march. And this was right after. Well, not right after, but it was after Seattle. And they had just had a big protest in Genoa where there was a lot of violence. So a bunch of people who had been particularly anarchists who had been marching in Genoa were coming, they were marching, or not really marching, they were taking public transit to the Netherlands. And there was this big protest that was scheduled. And the coolest thing about it for me, coming from, you know, having, you know, being in grad school where we read all this literature about how people don't protest unless it's their last possible option. It's, you know, no other choice but to protest. And that's when people take to the streets because it's very hard to get to have any effect when you march in the streets. And all of a sudden, all these people who were negotiating inside came outside and started marching and yelling. And in fact, they, what they were doing is they were filling these sandbags up with sand and they put them all around in this symbolic dike, human dike, they called it, around the, the conference hall where they were doing all the negotiations. And Jan Pronk, who was the president of the negotiations, which, because he was the environment minister from the Netherlands, he came out in front of all these cameras fill the last bag and he put the last bag on. And I was wow. like, this is not what protest is supposed to be about since all we read about is, you know, we read mostly about the civil rights era and that's when it was mostly disenfranchised people who were marching. And then during the, you know, during the war in Vietnam, there was all this marching about, you know, draft dodgers and then there was the bra burners. And that's really different from these people in their suits coming out who have been negotiating with other heads of government to actually participate in the streets. And so that kind of got me excited about thinking about protests and what protest and activism means in a contemporary era. So that's the background. So basically I went out and I had a, a friend of mine who was a friend from college who was in grad school at Berkeley at the time and she and I were rooming together and I said, would you survey with me? I wanna do this thing, try it out in the crowd. And so we went around and we talked to people while they were filling sandbags. So we would hold the bags and they would do the survey. and. That was the first the first time I ever collected data on protesters, and it was the first data point. It ended up being a, an article with a bunch of other protests that I wrote for Social Problems, which I think was my first publication, because none of it made it into my dissertation or the dissertation book, as funny uh -huh. as it is. But that's kind of how grad school is. I try to explain it to my grad students, but they're, they just kind of zone out when I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's such a great intro to kind of the methodology you use. When I first heard that you were studying protests, I thought, that's awesome. How? How is she doing that? <laughs> okay, well, this is something that I was told was too boring to do on Morning Joe, but I, I talked about it anyway, unfortunately. Oh, boo, Morning Joe. <laughs> Whatever, no. Morning Joe. Well, no, actually, in, in, in Morning Joe's defense, actually, Mika asked me about it, and I, she, it, I, I just, my, from hearing from people who watched it, they said, you shouldn't have talked about that. She never said anything. She asked. So basically, the, what we do is, you know, the problem when you go out to protest is you can't talk to everybody. That's not possible. And you usually, if you're lucky, if it's a big event, there are people for blocks and blocks. So how do you actually get a sense of the crowd at all? Historically, the way people have done it is my predecessors and some of my colleagues in Europe still hand out these like envelopes with a little money in it and, and stamps with pages and pages of survey to people walking through the crowd. And what they get is a terrible response. Yeah, I was going to say, no way that works. No, it doesn't work at all. So when we were trying to come up with this, when I was thinking about this right before the protests in the Netherlands, I was like, okay, that's not going to work. Let's just go and do a really quickie survey 
with people where they give us information while we're talking to them while they're waiting. Because a lot of times, you know, if you go to a protest, a lot of times people are just so standing. So much waiting. So much there's waiting. So much waiting. There can be chanting. There can be drumming. There can be yelling. But there's a lot of waiting. And especially if there are speakers, there's, you know, there's lots of time. So basically, the other thing we needed to do is so collect the data on the spot. That was number one. And number two was figure out how to sample in some sort of random way so you don't just talk to the people who make eye contact. Because there are those people, but those, you know, from social science, we know that those people who make eye contact and seem friendly are what we would call a biased sample. Those are the friendly, approachable peers, and those are not all the people in the crowd. So what we did is um, I figured out that what we should do is just go every fifth person, and basically what you need to do is figure out how to identify kind of lines in the crowd. So when you have a big crowd, the first time I did this with a big crowd was probably... Uh, during the globalization movement. So back in the United States, after September 11th, uh, there was a big protest that was scheduled around the World Economic Forum. It was being held in New York City after 9-11. It is a way of kind of bringing the United States, you know, kind of showing love to the New York City. So there was a big, the big international meeting held, and then there were big protests, and there were a bunch of anarchists who came to it. And so there was big crowds, and the idea was we needed to figure out where the crowd was assembling. And when they have permits... You know, you're permitted for a certain number of people in a certain space. And so we know that ahead of time because of the permits. And because usually they tell people, if you want to march, this is where you go and you stand and you wait. So what I do is I come with a research team because you can't do it all by yourself. And we go into all of the corners of the staging area, which is the area where you're either you're at the rally, you're listening to speakers, or you're just waiting to march. Or at the Women's March, you're just waiting because couldn't hear anything at the Women's March and because they didn't actually set it up so you could march. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So anyway, so I have research teams and I usually send out people together because you never know when there's going to be violence in the crowd. Like at that protest in New York City that I was telling you about, the anarchists came in and threw rocks at the police. So there was tear gas and I wanted my students to have somebody with them so they didn't get lost in the crowd and they had somebody there in case things got scary. So we do teams of two and then basically the idea is if you're standing on a street we just walk straight across the street counting every fifth person. Every fifth person gets a chance to take the survey. And it's a quickie survey. It used to be uh, on a clipboard with a piece of paper that was just one page, two-sided. But now we use these tablets, so we actually get the data and we can tabulate it quickly, which is why I know stuff about the Women's March this past weekend so quickly, because I was able to do that through these tablets, uh, which we just started last year. Um, but before that, we had these these one-page, two-sided surveys, and we did every fifth person, you just snake through the crowd from all sides. So usually people are standing in some sort of a parallelogram, so it's kind of easy to figure out where people are coming in. In Copenhagen at the Climate March 2009, it was funny because they were in one of these like Danish cities where it's like a square where there are all these different inlets coming in. So I had to kind of come up with a way to get at it because there were, um, I think it was 150,000 people at that march. So we had to figure out all these different inroads in where people were standing. So I needed to have enough people to go to all of those because the idea is that people tend to stand with, stand with friends or organizations you come with. So if you just go to one section of the crowd, like at the Women's March in 2017, the section of the crowd that went to see the speakers that got there really early, really, really different from the people who came later who were standing in the back. So you need to go through the whole crowd to get a sample. So what we do is, in all cases, sample. And in fact, I'm happy to say that a number of colleagues have used a similar, they used a similar methodology more recently to collect data in the crowds because it does seem to be an effective way.
that's the end of my long spiel on the methodology. Yeah, I think that's so important for two reasons. I mean, one, we probably have a lot of people listening who've never been to a protest. Uh, mm -hmm. And so hearing about the actual physical layout of it and the experience of being there, it's, I think, really important. And secondly, the way that politicians have come to characterize protests, to me, makes your research and particularly your methodology so critical. You know, protests have been dismissed so much lately by politicians who don't like what people are there protesting about. To have credible research with a consistently applied methodology seems to me to be more important than ever. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I completely agree with you. And it's so nice to hear that. I mean, it's funny because I feel like there's, even though this is the best way to get a sense of who's in the crowd, I do feel like I have had some, there's been some people from the media who push back when I have tried to share this because they just want to approach people and get a you know quickie information. Or, I mean, it's interesting, 538 was really wonderful and did this, what is it called, a, a short on the research in 2014, when, when I took a team to the People's Climate March up in New York City, it was funny. So that means that I was actually in the crowd. I had a really big research team. So I basically was not planning on collecting data because they wanted to, to collect, you know, kind of information for me for this film. But I was try I was showing them how we did the methodology. It was so funny because the cameraman kept being like, but look, there are people, there are women dressed as mermaids over there. Let's go talk to them. And I was like, no. That's the point. The whole the crowd is mostly not going to be mermaids. Whoever, whatever kind of protest you're at, not going to be mermaids. And it was so funny because in the film that they ended up doing, the mermaids got a huge amount of time because they danced. <laughs> they were somewhat scantily clad. But I was like, that's not who was really in the crowd. The people who were in the crowd were people wearing jeans and T-shirts and holding their kids' hands. And that's the most important thing. Any protest you go to, I mean, any large-scale protest, to get a lot of people out, it's mostly just every bit, everyday people like you I and me. I think what Beth is trying to get at is how many paid protesters do you encounter in your research? Since that's such a popular talking point. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it's funny because I used to ask people if they had received any money to come to protests and we actually took it off. I believe you because the answer was zero. zero. Or like two. And, you yeah. know, it's interesting because when I surveyed people and this starts in 2000, even I would say, did you get any money? Because it used to be that. Like non-governmental organizations would provide some funding assistance, like give you a fare card to take public transit to get there or something like that. So or provide housing or free buses. There was a time when there were free buses. I don't I have not seen any free buses since the inauguration. And I have not come in contact with anybody who was paid since the inauguration. Yeah, I think that that's you know, that's the line, though. That's what she means. Like you need research to dispute this sort of narrative that it's just the other side paying their people to come out. That's all this is. Yeah, I think that I just don't see any I don't see any data to support that. No evidence of that. I mean, the other thing I would just say is that, you know, at this point, m my research team has collected data on just about 1500 people who have been randomly surveyed in the crowds since 2017 began. And I haven't seen that once. And I've been in all of them except for one where I was out of the country, the March for Racial Justice. I would have seen it if it was prevalent. Yeah. So on the Women's March, I've. I've read the chapter that you wrote about it. I'm really interested in hearing about the diversity of people who are there. You've talked about how there are lots of different motivating factors, and I, I would love for you to just dive into that. Okay, so the one question I have for you is, do you want me to talk about the more recent data we just collected last weekend, or you want me to talk more about the stuff that I've spent more time thinking about? Stuff you've been more thinking, thinking about. Thinking. <laughs> okay. okay, great. I mean, so... 
Uh, well, let me tell you about the stuff I've been thinking about a lot. And we actually, my, my colleagues and I published a paper in Science Advances that came out in the fall, specifically on the Women's March. And what we found there is that there were very high percentages of motivations across the board. So one of the things that we do that's a little different is we started asking people why they came out, which you which seems kind of counterintuitive because historically when people study crowds, if you go into a crowd for the Women's March, you assume people are all out for women's rights. And because we had heard so much chatter about people who were coming out in 2017 because they were mad about a bunch of different reasons, one of my colleagues suggested, you know, let's ask a question. So we actually asked that question and we actually asked it for the Women's March 2017. We actually had a blank space on this paper survey and we asked people to fill it in. And I was like, I don't know how much data we'll get there. On average, uh, individuals who answered that question wrote in 2.7 issues per person. And that's wow. 528 respondents. So one of the challenges there is then we had to code those data. But it was amazing. And it ran, it ran the gamut. So you would have people writing about women, you know, women's rights. And in some cases, they would actually mention, you know, the president's comments that he made that were caught on, you know, on that tape with, uh, uh, with Bush. And then they would also, in some cases, they would mention their daughters. But in a lot of cases, they would then go on to talk about immigration, health care, welfare, the environment. And so what we decided to do is we, we coded all those data into what ended up being 14 categories. And then we looked at the percentage of people who mentioned all of them. And what we found is that so many people listed so many different issues that weren't about women at all, which is interesting because it was the Women's March. So at the Women's March, the women, women's rights was number one. It was 61%. But then above more than a third of the people in the crowd also listed environment, racial justice, LGBTQ rights, and reproductive rights. All but of if, those. But of course those things are about women, right? Every single one of them. Well, you know what? On some level, I completely agree with you. But the fact that they chose to write them in as well meant they were they were high. They were separating them too. Yeah, yeah, because they actually wrote them down. So what we decided to do the next march we went to was the march for science, and we then we moved into using these tablets to get information more quickly that we could analyze. And coding and analyzing those data was really hard. So we had those fourteen categories. We put them on as a checklist, check all that apply, and then there was another category where people could then fill in. And what's really interesting is at every march, while one issue would rise to the top, at, which was usually the issue that was the focus of the march. For example, the People's Climate March, 97% of the people said environment was the reason they came out. But then across the board, all these other issues every time would go, would go up in importance. And one of the ones that was going up the fastest was Trump, where actually 56% of the participants of the People's Climate March said that they came out because of Donald Trump as president. So what we then did is we started to look at how they were related to one another. And one of the things that's not surprising is that people's identities determined what were issues that they said were important. Women were more likely to pick women's rights. Hispanics were more likely to pick immigration. People of color, particularly people who self-identify as black, were more likely to pick police brutality or racial justice. So that's not surprising. But what was surprising was that there were also these cliques across issues where we saw patterns across them that formed, some of which were identity-based and some of which weren't. And so we actually are working now on just finishing up a paper, looking at that across all the protests through 2017. And what we find is that, you know, 
the you know certain issues tend to be very non-identity based if you want to call it that so it's not based on my being a woman or if i was a person of color or my religion but some you know are so for example a lot of times people who are white pick the environment and peace tends to be ones which is is in some ways not surprising because those tend to be movements that people say are white people's concerns more than non-white people's concerns for what it's worth but what's also interesting is LGBTQ issues and people who select LGBTQ also select select these other identity-based issues mm. consistently. So there's a lot of really interesting patterns there. The biggest pattern that we're trying to finally figure out is that these, these kind of coalitions, if you can call it that, across the different issues that brought people out change at every march. Mm. And there's very little consistency. The one thing that's interesting is when we do network analysis on these, where we look at the ties, people who say that they're most concerned about a number of different issues, women's rights ends up being central in almost all of the marches. But still, the patterns of what women's rights is connected to statistically changes. And my explanation for that right now is that people's attention has been shifting so quickly because of the different um, efforts by both President Trump in terms of the way he uses social media, but also the efforts of the Trump administration keep shifting people's attention. All of a sudden, they're very shifted on ACA and healthcare, and so that becomes one of the most important things for them. Now there's the travel ban and immigration becomes a big issue, and it swings. So, so we're trying to think through that. The last thing I'll say is that we haven't done this level of sophisticated analysis yet on the data we collected last weekend. The most interesting, most interesting thing I see so far is that across the board, these percentages that I listed before have gone, they've skyrocketed. So that women's rights, again, is the most important issue. 92% of the people said they were motivated to come out for women's rights. But there were all these other issues that are politically salient right now that motivated people. 89% of the people in the crowd said equality was a big reason that they came out. 78% said immigration and 76% said racial justice. And this is at a women's march, okay? And you're right that these all are related to women's issues, but the fact that so high a percentage of these people are saying these are interesting and important and worth checking off when they're at a women's march is really, really interesting to me. And I have to figure, you know, we, we have to dig into those data to figure out exactly what those patterns mean. But d- given what's been going on politically in this country, it does make a lot of sense that those are the, pers- the are the motivations that are high, but that they're still turning out people. And in the case of the women's march last weekend, the percentage of politically moderate and right-leaning people in the crowd went way up as well means that people are concerned and they're not just Democrats who are concerned. A lot of people are concerned and they're coming up. Mm. So when we were preparing to talk with you, I watched a video of you talking about how in order for protests to be effective, it almost has to be protest plus. Protest plus yeah. boycotting certain stores or goods, protest plus running for office, plus contact with elected officials. Does all of this diversity in these marches enhance the likelihood of that protest plus taking place or does it make it more challenging or is it both in some ways? I'm going to go with both since we're talking nuance here. I mean, I think (laughs) that when, I mean, when it comes down to it, I think that, I think that for a movement of any sort to be successful and we can look back at kind of the movements that we think of that have been most successful 
Historically in the United States, a lot of people go lean towards civil rights, even though there are still challenges there. Some people talk about the women's movement and there were different waves of it and there were successes along the way, although we obviously still face many, many challenges that have been discussed a lot lately. But in both of those cases, it wasn't just marching in the streets. And I think that that's the big lesson is you, you've got to have more tactics in your toolbox. And that's why I think it's so interesting the ways that perhaps because there's so many different issues motivating people, there are so many tools that are in the toolbox. And there are groups that are focusing specifically on getting women to run, getting scientists to run, getting people of color to run. And that's a cool, innovative new tactic, relatively new to the political toolbox, if you want to call it that. But they're also focusing on you know, registering voters, power to the polls, as well as one of the things that we see in the data is that more and more of the people in the crowd are doing other things politically besides participating in protests. So any accounts and critiques that people are just marching, they're just complaining, or like the president said, they're not voting, it's completely untrue based on the data I have. They're doing a lot more and they're doing it more than they were before. And what I think is really interesting, and you know, in my research outside of protests, I have focused a lot on kind of civic engagement and political involvement at the local level. And there's no question in my mind that politics is local. And you know, it's much easier to get involved and to make social change when you're focusing in your communities. And it looks like the people who are participating in these protests are focusing in their communities in really important ways. And I think that, you know, that's key to politics in America and democracy in America. It's certainly different than the mermaid angle. Wow. <laughs> Very different. And most of them are wearing full outfits, covering <laughs> all their major body parts. It is also January, and the other March was in you know, a warm day in fall. But still, I imagine most people would be fully dressed. So I think what's so interesting for me about this research is Beth is not a protester. I am, in fact, a protester. I went to my first protest. I went to the Million Mom March. Do you remember that one in the 90s after Columbine? Because I went to a school where there was a school shooting. So me and my one of my classmates and our moms went to Washington, D.C. for the Million Mom March. I went to the pro-choice march that was that would have been in, I think, maybe like April. It was after George Bush was elected. So for the first time. No, I'm pretty sure that's right. It was like, and it was like April of 2004. I think that sounds right. Traveled for that one too. In fact, I'm not sure I went to a protest when I actually lived in DC. I think I mostly traveled for that one. (laughs) But when I, you talk about the protest plus and like, so my community was just hit with another school shooting this week. So I'm sorry to hear about that. Yeah. And I think back about that protest and I think, is that what we were missing? The protest plus, because we definitely had the, the diversity of participants there and it was like a really good diverse group and a group that was passionate about but i also wonder if it's like that link to i think the power of the current movement is what you're talking about that it's complex that it's linked to identity but it also has like a policy focus so that you can push it into a protest plus angle does that make sense like there's more motivating people and therefore they're more likely to take different strategies And when I look back, one of the best things I've read, particularly about gun violence, is that being pro Second Amendment is so linked to identity. But we have not gotten there with gun control yet. It still feels like a policy position you you support, but not like identity. Although I think it got close with that mom thing. And that's still a mom angle being taken by gun control advocates. And so I just think that's when you said that I was like, yeah, I think that was missing there. I can see in protests where it wasn't missing and where why those were more effective. But I just love that you are sort of making people 
that don't want to think this way to understand that like it is a diverse group there. Like there's nothing on paper about me or my mom that is a, my mom's really never gone to another one since the million mile March, you know, and I think that would be an, another interesting data point is to learn how many people go and then never go back or how many people are like, this is like their approach. This is what they like to do. Cause I do think there is like an aspect of personality to who to, goes to protest. Like I wish you could have on your tablet, like people's Meyer Briggs scores. Like that would be super fascinating. Oh, that would- <laughs> That would be, be so very cool. But you'd have to, and then you'd be like, oh, click here to go take a Myers Briggs test if you haven't yeah. taken one before. That's it would take a long time. That's a little personality test of itself. Who already knows their Myers Briggs? <laughs> you know what I mean, exactly. like, that's a personality test itself. But I think that that I feel so- like that's an indicator of having worked in Washington D.C. Though is that you've taken a Myers Briggs test? Well, see, we both took it in college at Kentucky. Oh, they really? Gave it to freshmen, yeah. That's cool. I wonder if they do. I don't know anybody who does that in Maryland. Maybe, maybe we should do that. I mean, I want to just say one thing is I also think, though, and I think this is a really interesting distinction between the left and the right that people haven't talked a lot about. That is that. So historically, and then I've been one of the people who has critiqued the Democratic Party because they've been really what we call instrumental in terms of thinking about engaging people outside of the Obama campaign in 2008. I would say that there's been a lot of focus on you know, numbers like doors knocked and people mobilized and identifying, you know, target audiences to bring, you know, to get out the vote rather than just engaging communities. And there's this infrastructural deficit that persists. At the same time, on the right, the Republican Party has done a wonderful job of engaging communities and keeping people connected through like face-to-face contact with people you know. And that's something that, you know, I wrote a lot about that in uh, my book, Activism Inc., back in 2006. But it's something that is persistent. And in my first chapter of American Resistance, I talk a little bit about that. And I know that I'm going to be fleshing that out more because in a lot of ways, what I see in the resistance today is a bunch of not just these individuals who want to get involved and are ripe for doing something, but all of these organizations that are new, indivisible, flippable, uh, swing left, so many more that I am not naming that have all fit that they've come out in a lot of ways, I would argue, to fill this void on the left, to give opportunities to people, all the groups that are trying to get people to run. They're filling this void because there's not much going on on the local level and giving people, you know, channels into doing more political things than just marching. And I think that's something that's really been missing on the left, which I have not seen missing on the right. I mean, and the Tea Party provided some channels for people, local people, to do stuff during, you know, the early aughts and, and do stuff they did, right? So, so have you, you gone to any of those, like, very right-wing marches, like the Tea Party marches on D.C.? Like, the I know Glenn Beck did one. I would give anything if you had data from Charlottesville. But I wonder if, if you have, do you notice a difference? Have you been to any of those? So I have, I, uh, you know, I bracketed my research and have only looked specifically at uh, like left-leaning protests. And particularly because I've, most of the time when I've been doing this, it's been asking a question about the specific movement, be it, you know, I I did a Mm -hmm. bunch of stuff on the climate environmental movement and, you know, the globalization movement. So those those all tend to be on the left. And historically, people on the left march more than people on the right. There have been marches on the right. And there actually was the March for Life here last week on Friday. I have a colleague who does that, but I just, because I have two other big research projects that I've focused on over the years, I haven't been able to collect data on all of these. I mean, I've been, they've been keeping me very busy just with collecting data on what I've got. So unfortunately, yeah, so unfortunately I don't have that. I want, what is your, so you say you have a colleague that does that though? Yeah, Michael Heaney has collected data on all the protests since 
since the beginning of 2017. So he has it for the March for Life last year as well as this year. He collected, I don't know if he was in Charlottesville because nobody expected that to be big. Yeah. Yeah. Like nobody expected what happened. So I'm not sure if he was there. We went, we had our big annual meeting um, in Canada. So I was actually up in Canada at the American Sociological Association meeting. And I actually was on a panel on the resistance right when the car went into the crowd. So That's... somebody actually re- yelled out in the middle of our panel about what had happened. Wow. Um, yeah. But so Michael, if Michael d- hasn't collected data there, he would know who has because his his research area is more overall protests where I'm just looking at specifically protests on the left. He That's also, so I mean, he looks, yeah, I mean, he also like, I tend to look at these large scale protests because I think they're really different from the smaller ones. And he doesn't care about the size of the people in the crowd. And I think we get different things because of that. But, you know, it's just you have to bracket the research in some way. And that's how I've done it. He also has been very lucky because he's gotten research funding for his work over the years. Uh, This is funny for me because this research project on protests, which I've been doing since 2000, since I was a graduate student, I've never once received a cent of research funding for it. So it's all been my labor of love where I either fund it through discretionary funds or out of pocket. Wow. Wow unfortunate but you know the way we do research so (laughs) other projects are funded which is why my attention you know gets diverted to other things from time to time sarah and i have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that i spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and i have added ritual to my routine which just gives me a lot of comfort ritual is here for us they have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So I saw that you, and you mentioned that you found that more independent and even right-leaning folks were attending the most recent Women's March. And the theme of protests tend to be more of a left-leaning tactic, I think is really fascinating. And I've been thinking a lot about whether I don't think of myself as a protester, probably for some of the same personality reasons that I think of myself as more conservative. (laughs) And thinking about the issues that are animating my political involvement today, I do think it's interesting that you've got this big diversity in these protests that that is forming all these offshoots that might be able to grab more people like me. I just joined a Moms Demand chapter locally, right? So going to a meeting at the library about gun violence, that appeals to me in a totally different way than being in the streets. And I wonder if you've seen any patterns like that in terms of political affiliation and personality as it relates to protests. Does that question make sense? It makes sense. I have to think about it because that's a that's a very uh, multi-layered question. Let me think about it. I mean, the one thing I was going to say is, so Moms Demand actually was one of the co-sponsors of the big march in New York last weekend, which is really interesting because they also are really well known for these kind of per in-person meetings and they're very locally grounded, which is great. I mean, one of the things I think was really cool about the march last weekend or all the marches across the country, and there were over 250 of them across the country is that they were not coordinated by any big national group. They were all coordinated by their state level groups or even city level groups. Like the one that I went to in DC here was coordinated by groups in Virginia that were following up on all of the stuff they did around the 2017 election. And it was really fascinating because as a result, I predicted that there was going to be a low turnout. In fact, many of us who study it were like, well, it's going to be local groups and the Women's March, the big national group, they're going to Nevada. They want to do this thing. They didn't even march. They're not calling for people to march. So people aren't going to march. And we were so wrong. I mean, people marched and they came out and they came out because of local involvement. And I actually think going back to this question, I think that these large protests have historically... And I mean historically, like recent historically, not back in the civil rights era, but the recent historically, the big marches are coordinated by a big national group that says we need a big national march. And usually it's a big national march on D.C. And so they get a coalition of a bunch of national groups and they call for people to come to D.C. and do something. So you're really in some ways not cherry picking, but taking a very selective type of person who is the kind of person who goes to D.C. marches because they're connected with a national group. Yeah. And I think that when all of a sudden it's local groups 
that are doing a bunch of different things, be they the tea party or when the meetups, remember when meetups were big right around the um, 2000 campaign? And that was not just on the left, although they got a lot of attention around the Dean campaign, but they were across the, the whole spectrum. Those were really locally grounded. And I feel like it's the local grounding that then means you can go to a PTA meeting or you can go to a meeting at your library. And then every once in a while, something, you know, probably horrible happens, unfortunately, like a shooting. And, you know, the group that you're involved with says we need to do something. I mean, in the 1980s, there was Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which got really active. And it's really there's been really interesting work done on Mothers Against Drunk Driving and how they mobilize people. And they did do some marching, but mostly they worked through schools, some moms at schools, so that they were trying to keep kids from drinking and driving because there were so many kids who were drinking and driving and getting killed, you know, or horrible things happening. And what's interesting is the research they did there actually found that... Um, people came out and got mobilized to participate in really different ways when they're coming through those kinds of groups. And I think that what we're going to see now is that the mobilization method, whether it's through an organization you're already a member of or a friend or neighbor or colleague or co-student or something, that really is the thing that, you know, we tend to think brings people out. And I think that that's the way that people, you know, who are less protest-minded or personality, you know, focused towards that, will get involved. I mean, the other thing that I would just say is my research has also found that what we call moral shocks, which is are these 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 moments in time where you feel like you've just got to do something, be it because of you know a shooting, which unfortunately has happened what in eleven different places now in this year, but happened, you know, these horrible shootings that happened also last year, make people feel like they have to do something. And these, those are those kinds of shocks, or it'd be a travel ban where all of a sudden people are being held at airports that nobody expected. People all of a sudden feel like they need to do something. And then you see people coming into the streets who aren't already connected in local ways. So there are these two different forces that may be bringing more people out to get involved in ways that we wouldn't have expected before. So that was a long answer to your question, though. It's a great answer, though, and I think it's really, um, I think I think it speaks to what I'm observing and what I'm feeling within myself as a person who is not drawn to the Women's March, but is drawn to what underlies the Women's March. Yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe that's also, as we see, you know, what I've been saying is that I think that the movement has been shifting and evolving towards focusing on the districts and focusing on local local engagement. And there, all of a sudden, the tactic becomes really different than just this national group X called for me to march, so I'm going to march. And all of a sudden, it's more like I'm involved in ending gun violence and making sure that our schools are safe. What am I going to do? And You know what I can't help but think about? I can't help but think about that the NRA is one of the most successful national advocacy groups, and I don't see them calling for marches all the time. No, they don't. And perhaps that's also associated with the demographics there because the, the NRA has a lot of older uh, folks who may not be so excited about marching and standing <laughs> up out in the street. Besides the fact that I'm not sure it's such a good idea to have so many people packing if they're going to be standing in a really crowded space, so true. Getting, getting in each other's faces. Well, you know what? One of the things that's very interesting is I know the ACLU has just started to do a program to engage local people. And the name of the initiative is something like people power but it's two p's i forget what it is i can get the name for you if you're interested 
But what they've actually said is their goal is to become like the NRA, where all of a sudden people are engaged in their communities in kind of local involvement that also provides, you know, health care and access to, you know, other types of activities. And I think that's a really interesting, they set a really interesting model. There's nothing on the left that's similar to what NRA does. Well, and I have to I believe mean, for, the ACLU for, is swimming in money in a way they haven't before. So I would, ima- I would imagine you are correct. Yeah. So you talk about protests in the streets, in the districts, and the government itself. I feel like we've hit the first two. Can you give us a little bit before we wrap up about the government itself? Sure. So I call it resistance in the government. I don't know if we can call it protest. I mean, maybe we can. There are some examples. That one I have not. So that that chapter I have not done more than collected some preliminary data on it. And the original idea for the chapter was uh, right after the National Park Service released inauguration images that showed the Trump inauguration in comparison to the Obama inauguration, and they got slapped by the Trump administration for using social media in ways they you know, were not supposed to, and how in response to that, a whole bunch of national parks, I think it was the Badlands first, created these alt or rogue social media accounts on Twitter to tweet out information that they were then told that they weren't allowed to in their capacity as entities of the federal government. And I just thought that was fascinating. At this point, I believe there are over 200 such alt or rogue accounts that represent, theoretically, factions of the U.S. government. And so I was really interested in that. The challenge of it is there's no way to know if they actually represent people who work in the government at all. So uh, as... 2017 continued, there was also these uh, examples of cities that were standing up to, for example, the travel ban. And then in response to the Trump administration pulling out of the Paris Agreement, a bunch of cities and states starting the We're Still In campaign, which was resisting this idea that the federal government and the United States in total was no longer going to be a party to the Paris Agreement, which made us one of two countries in the world now that are not parties. And I actually think Syria now is in, so it's we're the only one. So they they had this we're still in campaign. Um, so I started thinking about that. And then at the same time, a number of people who have been in the administration have worked through multiple administrations, you know, many of them going back to at least George W. Bush, if not before, have left office with messages of resistance, including, you know, an advisor at the State Department, a science advisor at the State Department, who spelled out in his resignation letter the word resist at the beginning of each of his paragraphs, and he made that public. And then there have been a lot of things like that, and these advisory councils that have either shut down completely or many people have stepped down. So there's there's a big story to be said there about the ways that different actors at the federal government level as well as at the local government level are trying to resist these policies coming from the administration. And so that's what the last chapter is going to be about. And what I've been doing so far, because I'm working on finishing the resistance in the districts chapter in the next month or so, is I'm just keeping track of all these and how I don't know how I'm going to organize them yet. So I don't have a really clear narrative yet. But there are so many cases. I mean, and I know, for example, um, there are a number of people who have taken uh, buyouts to retire from the U.S. government at the federal level. And a number of them have come forward and said they would love to talk to me. So I could talk to those people. But there are, there are many different ways to go about it. So basically, that's where, where I'm going with it. And whether, you know, I need, obviously, to look at some level at the subnational, some level at different branches of the government, 
And I have to figure out how to think about the social media angle, but it's so hard because you cannot validate because tw Twitter, you know, whoever owns the Twitter accounts, it's secret who actually is in the government. So I'm not sure how to do that yet, but we actually, um, with my research team, we've been analyzing those rogue and alt Twitter accounts and comparing them to state accounts to see if we can get a sense of how the content is different. I don't know if that'll tell us the, the answer to that question though. So, so that's what I'm planning on doing, but that's the last, that's the hardest chapter in that chapter. Probably my goal is to have that one done by the end of the summer. So those will all be up on my website. And then after the midterm elections, I'm going to revise them all based on what has happened since. And well, that'll I, be the end of the book. <laughs> I hope you will come back and talk to us about that when you're there, because I think that is fascinating work. I would love to. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you if they want to follow your work? Uh, great question. So the two places they can find me is my website, which is drfisher.umd.edu. That's just my general website. But for the stuff I'm doing on the resistance, it's actually AmericanResistanceBook.com, and I can send you a link to that. But everything is there, and I put up little pieces as I'm working on them. I blog them, and then every chapter goes live there. So, for example, the chapter on the resistance in the streets went up um, this past weekend on the anniversary. The resistance in the districts, I'm going to try to find a catchy time to release it over this summer, maybe around some of the big primaries. And then uh, the last one. We'll go, but everything will be up there first before it gets revised after the midterms. Well, we'll put links to all of that in our show notes. Thank you so much for being here. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Dana Fisher. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. <laughs>